For the week of Wednesday, December 12th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Hello. This week, we convene a panel to discuss how we can talk more effectively about the issue of climate change here in Washington. We break down what went right and ultimately wrong with Initiative 1631. We talk about the parameters of the newly introduced Green New Deal, and we explore how to convey the urgency of what is one of the most pressing issues of our time. In the second half of the show, we will have our weekly call to action with Indivisible Washington's 8th team leader, Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead, so stay with us. Climate change is happening. We are seeing its effects right now all over the world. But it is still happening gradually, and unless you are directly affected by it, unless you've lost a home to flooding or wildfires or a hurricane, it can be a back-burner issue for most voters. A pre-midterm election Gallup poll had only 2% of respondents saying that climate change was their most pressing concern, which is far behind issues like health care and immigration. And here in Washington, Initiative 1631, which would have imposed a carbon fee on businesses that emit carbon, failed to pass in November, getting only 43% of the vote. And this brings us to a fundamental question. How can we more effectively convey the urgency of climate change so that voters will make it a priority? To help tackle this question, we have three extraordinary guests. First, Asim Prakash. He is professor with the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington and founding director of the UW Center for for environmental politics. Welcome, Asim Prakash. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Also, Stephen Karseski, he is a PhD candidate in sociology and graduate fellow at the UW Center for Environmental Politics. Hello, Stephen. Hi. And finally, Ashley Ahern, she is a public media journalist who has covered science and the environment for NPR for more than a decade. And most recently, she was the host and producer of the environmental podcast Terrestrial. Ashley Ahern, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. So um, I would like to start a discussion by doing a postmortem on Initiative 1631. Uh, Asim, in an article that you co-authored with Stephen for Crosscut, uh, you both noted that while polls show nationwide support for a carbon tax on fossil fuel industries, you also say that a carbon tax doesn't really move voters. It doesn't get them excited. You ultimately conclude that cap and trade might be more favorable. But why do we think, for our purposes here, that a carbon fee, even like 1631 that was, quote, revenue positive, meaning that it would create money streams for its climate programs. Why did it fail to motivate voters, in your opinion? I think there are two three different reasons. So one is something that's idiosyncratic to Washington politics and other is carbon fee per se. So the, this most recent version of the carbon fee 1631 had some problems in, in its design. First, I think uh, we haven't seen the exit poll data yet or reliable exit poll data yet, but there was a large pushback on how the money would be spent. So there was a perception as an unelected board that's outside the regular scrutiny of the appropriation process, and that would be given the charge of spending almost a billion dollars a year. So an important lesson is that it's not only about climate change, the voters who are expected or asked to pony up money would also like an assurance that the money would be spent in an accountable way. Number two is obviously the the pocketbook issue. That's the issue that's happening in France, that people simply don't want to pay more taxes. And what Stephen, Nevis, and I, we have shown that other tax initiatives in the state of Washington on 2018 ballot, whether it's about soda tax, whether it's about oil spills, were defeated. So it's not a vote against liberal causes because the gun control measures 
passed, the eighth congressional district slipped, and Maria Cantwell, you know, she uh, did very well with 59% vote. So it's a vote of no confidence against more taxes. Well, the, Ashley, let's uh, let's bring you in. You covered how 1631 was fought on the eastern side of the state, and uh, you talked to a number of people there who were against it. Uh, tell us what some of their reasons were there. First off, what I want to say, Stefan, is that, you know, the folks who were behind 1631 really left it all in the field. So I feel bad even Monday morning quarterbacking them. Sure. I mean, yeah. folks really, you know, over on the West Side pushed hard for this. And uh, we interviewed them all... here a couple of times on the program. And so That's I do great. know how okay. hard they worked. Yeah. Yeah. No, of course. And um, and I just think that, you know, there are some things that I would like to share observations from actually living out here in communities that did not feel like they had a place at the table or were part of a conversation that was happening on the West Side among, frankly, liberals and kind of elite was the perception, I would say. And again, I'm generalizing out here, but I have, you know, I live in a small community on the eastern side of the Cascades now. So I talk to a lot of folks. Um, So some key takeaways for me, there are really three. Um, This, the fee affects people out here disproportionately. And more specifically, when you have to drive a pickup truck or an SUV long distances, and you don't have an option for public transit, 14 cents a gallon more is is a big difference. And when you heat with propane, although a lot of people heat with wood because it's cheaper out here, you know, $250 to fill up a propane tank a couple times a winter when prices go up on that and you're you're swallowing that big chunk of change that needs to go out the door a couple times a winter, that's meaningful. And I think that also um, poverty out here, rural poverty looks different. You know, like you can have a hundred acres and maybe a hundred head of cows and still have your house falling down around you and drive an old pickup truck, not because it looks good on Instagram, but because mm. it still works and it will get you where you need to go. And unfortunately, those trucks are very rarely fuel efficient and there's not really another option for a lot of people out here. So I think the perception of 1631 and the way it was designed was regressive and specifically targeting the rural poor or rural lower income. So I think that um, that voice just wasn't really at the table. And I think, you know, generalizing again, but this is a pretty this side of the state is pretty red and the Elway poll, you know, from before the election showed that 65% of Republicans opposed 1631. And so, you know, living out here, it wasn't a surprise to me that 1631 didn't pass. Um, And I think that the other, you know, big source of opposition was this sense that folks out here don't trust the government. They don't have a lot of patience for it and they don't have a lot of faith in government institutions. And so when you talk about a, you know, a politically appointed board meeting out money, um, you know, in ways that they see fit, it's there. I heard again and again from people out here, we have no guarantee that any of that money is going to come back to our community. And keep in mind, this is a part of the state that saw the worst wildfires in state history. So, Mm -hmm. you know, climate change, the effects of climate change are real and the costs are real to people out here. Um, But, you know, the faith in the government and its ability to kind of do what's needed out here um, is is not really there. And I think what's really interesting is that what I hear again and again from environmentalists and folks behind 1631 is, oh, it was the fossil fuel companies that were opposing it. They killed it, you know, $30 million. That's how you kill a, you know, a, a ballot initiative. But there were also the local electric co-ops out here opposed to this. I mean, there was other. Yeah, that's that's something you talked about in your reporting, that these these co-ops would have had to raise rates in a way that would have cost users uh, a lot of money. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of money, I think, is relative speaking. But, yes, you know, if you do the math, I think co-ops are often I mean. To me, what that says is that there wasn't really an organized voice speaking for more rural conservative folks in this state on 1631. So I think the co-ops became sort of a proxy for that. Um, and I think there are a lot of ratepayers out here that were really uncomfortable with the fact that their their co-op was taking a stand against climate 
um, you know, a climate initiative. So to be clear on that, but I think that what happened was, you know, these co-ops are, are kind of on the ground in the communities and seeing who can't pay their bills and how much the bills cost and realizing, wow, this is, this could potentially hurt our community and nobody else is speaking up on their behalf. So we're going to, at least that's what I heard from the co-ops out here. And I did speak to a couple of them. So um, I think that, that, you know, those were sort of the key takeaways. It's that lack of faith in government institutions and also just real on the ground impacts that felt like they were disproportionately going to affect folks out here. I will say, though, that with that, um, you know, the big fossil fuel expenditure uh, from, you know, against 1631, the talking points that did make it through to people out here that were effective, I think, on that side of things was the whole idea of exemptions and who wasn't going to be paying the fee, right? Or who wasn't going to be affected by the fee. I heard again and again from people out here, well, you know, the biggest polluters aren't really going to be paid. It's you and me and our, at the pump that are going to be paying for this thing. So, You're talking about you know, the exemptions for something? jet fuel and uh, industrial exactly. fuel. Exactly, like yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. So trade-dependent, tra- you know, um, smelt, aluminum smeltering and, you know, sure. all the kind of big industrial things that we, we need as a state and are part of the state economy, right? So um, I think that granting exemptions was kind of part of the, the devil's bargain you need with climate, you know, a climate ballot initiative, unfortunately. But I think that the way the fossil fuel industry played that to kind of weaken public sentiment in support of 1631 was very effective out here. Right. And, you know, I seem I, I think a lot of what Ashley is calling attention to here is that often policies that are designed to help the environment inadvertently do wind up hurting some working people. Uh, and I think we're seeing this dynamic play out in France right now with the so-called yellow vest protests, which were in response to a gas hike there. And Asim, you said in a piece in The Hill that climate advocates need to address the perception that the underprivileged will bear the cost of climate change and to talk about how they will be compensated. And this is something you refer to as embedded environmentalism. Talk about this. How would this work? Sure. So as you rightly said, there's a perception that the climate books are going to be balanced on the back of the underprivileged. And this would be things like a fuel tax hike or the, the rhetoric we hear from environmental groups about dirty fossil fuel. So it seems that they have declared a war not on fossil fuel, but on fossil fuel workers. Right. So if you put it in the context that a lot of these communities where you have these extractive industries are actually very poor communities. So you have these poor communities who feel that these urban environments are descending, telling them that they have to pony up the bill to save the environment. And then they feel their sacrifices are in vain because China and India and other countries keep on using coal. So why should a poor coal worker of West Virginia only have the cost for helping an environment for a cause that is not going to be served by the sacrifice, apart from the cultural condescension? So in the sense, you know, basket of deplorables and so on and so forth. These things are very hurtful. And these things accumulate that there is a huge urban-rural divide. There's a huge elite, non-elite divide. And I think what environmentalists have to do that whenever they say that we want a tax, we want fossil fuel, this and that, they should say, we realize the pains this will inflict on local communities, and this is the plan how we are going to ameliorate this pain. And they should actually have an active outreach, not in Western Washington. They should have an active outreach in Eastern Washington, in rural communities, and trying to understand their perspectives. Because as Ashley said, everybody understands global warming. Yakima and other agricultural areas are feeling the effect of global warming. But the idea is we've not been able to create a policy package where the local community says, you know what, I'll bear the cost because eventually I'm going to be the beneficiary and my voice is being heard. I'm not going to be hectored by these urban elites that I'm the cause of the problem. I'm not a cause of the problem. I'm just a poor farmer, a poor worker who's working hard 
to get the food on the table to educate my kids. And I'm not going to tolerate this culture of condescension and this talking down that is happening all the time. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a change in mindset that we are not protecting the environment for Mother Earth, but we are protecting the environment for the common person. And our policies are designed to create better jobs, to help communities, and to solve local problems. And I think this is a very different rhetoric. So they have to climb down their moral horse, stop going to this IPCC and COPs and all these international circuses, and get down to grassroots. Well, you know, that very naturally transitions into what I wanted to talk about next, which is the Green New Deal. So uh, Congresswoman-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is one of several members of Congress behind uh, what is being called the Green New Deal, which would direct government resources to create a new green energy-based economy and to guarantee jobs to tens of millions of workers in the process. Uh, so the the reference to the New Deal there is, is not accidental. Um, this is something that would obviously have to be implemented when the Democrats control the federal government again. But Stephen, let's bring you into the conversation. Do you think that a program like this might successfully balance the scales for workers to incentivize them and bring them over ultimately to the side of environmentalism? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. Um, I think, you know, spending spending on infrastructure and, and clean energy definitely could be part of a successful political strategy. You know, I mean, it, that was part of infrastructure spending was part of Trump's uh, campaign. So, you know, not to take away other motivations for voting for Trump, but, (laughs) you know, that could have motivated some voters to support him and it could be a successful platform for either party. And I also think like there might be something to just pushing for tangible projects rather than tying them to the environment. Because, you know, like tying it to the environment can make it more of a partisan issue, but like people support things that their government does when they see that they're benefiting it. You know, people support taxes when they know it's going to build roads, when they know it's going to build bridges. I mean, even schools is something that's pretty largely supported. So if this is like to get jobs, I absolutely think that would help, you know, carbon taxation and any sort of uh, climate policy or climate action in general. Well, Ashley, I'd love to get your thoughts on the the Green New Deal. And specifically, I'm wondering if you think that uh, this is something that could potentially shift the national dialogue on climate. Well, I think Stephen's spot on in terms of um, when people have work, you know, what I, folks out here, they want to work. They don't want handouts and they don't want to be applying for grants and sort of begging for favors from the government. They want to just do the same thing they've always been doing and, and stay active and stay, you know, self-sufficient, I think is a real point of pride out here that would, I think, um, philosophically align with the concept of a new deal in the sense that you're creating work and projects that are needed. Um, I don't know about sort of bringing people over to the idea of environmentalism or becoming environmentalist out of it. I think that being an environmentalist is often a luxury. You know, if you have the, the luxury to think about being uh, taking environmental action, then, then maybe perhaps more people will, but that luxury doesn't happen until you have food on the table and until you have an income. Um, so I think for a lot of folks out here, that's just not um, bandwidth that they have to give. Um, as for the New Deal, I think that um, that's a good question, Stefan. I think that um, there is, if there's anything that's going to shift a conversation, it's a massive um you know, piece of legislation that is going to actually solve other existing problems in terms of infrastructure needs. Um, my fear, though, with, with this, and again, there's not a lot of details available on it yet, um, is that it becomes a sort of a 
it has to be a Green New Deal. You know, Bill McKibben has been talking about this for a while, that the scale of work that is needed is a World War II level effort where everything needs to be put towards solving climate change and, and shoring us up for the effects of climate change that we're going to be seeing more of in the years to come. And so I think that, you know, a New Deal sounds great. If it's not green, if it's not really focused on specifically climate change related effects, i.e. if it gets watered down in the sort of bipartisan compromise that happens um, in the nation's capital by necessity, um, my concern would be that you lose the sort of um, opportunity for the, getting the work done that needs to get done for the sake of reaching the political compromise. And I don't really have an answer to that problem. I'd love mm. to hear um, others' thoughts on that. But that would be where I think I would be starting to ask questions as a journalist is, okay, so what what makes this new deal green and how do you keep it green through the sausage making machine of Washington, D.C.? Yeah. And I think that's that's a, a really uh, fundamental question. And and as I said, I mean, I, I don't think that something like this is even going to be implemented before the Democrats are in charge of D.C., take the White House again, uh, take both chambers of Congress. Um, but even then, as you say, it really is a sausage making process and there are compromises to be made. And of course, you'll see some pushback from Republicans on that side. But, you know, I do want to shift over and talk about our central issue here, which is how to make climate change more urgent an issue to voters. Uh, and I should mention that this is timely on a number of levels. Uh, first, on Monday, Governor Inslee introduced a package of climate legislation that he hopes to pass in 2019 here in the state. And then, of course, despite the fact that the Trump administration tried to bury it on Black Friday, their mandated climate report did come out and people are talking about it and about how bleak it is. Uh, And yet we've seen very little shift in terms of policy. And so I'd love to talk about that and frame it in terms of how we might make this a priority for voters to drive that policy. Um, Asim, in a a piece that you wrote, uh, co-wrote for The Hill, you say that some people report that the the constant barrage of dire news about the climate tends to turn them off the issue. Is this a framing issue? How should we better frame it? So I think it's, it's certainly a framing issue, but it's also a substantive issue. By framing one means that you have to use the right words, the right ideas, so it resonates with people. So by that account, Green New Deal is building on a historical legacy and would probably have some traction, assuming that Americans still remember what the New Deal was and they have a good idea of uh, history, which I'm kind of skeptical about. Number two issue, which I think is, I think even more important is substantive implications. If you keep on talking about climate change, climate change, climate change, people are sick and tired because every year, in fact, my son yesterday, you know, I was rereading the IPCC report and he said, but haven't they given these doomsday predictions previously also? Mm. So every, so, you know, as psychology research attests that if you keep on giving on particular kind of news all the time, people start discounting it. So one is to have climate change as an opportunity, not as a threat. And stop talking about climate change and stop start talking about local issues. As I said, talk about fires. That is something people in Eastern Washington can relate to. And say, we want to help you cope with fires and we're going to do this, we are going to do this. So the bottom line for me to understand is, first of all, the word climate change has become highly politicized. We have to find a new vocabulary. And second, instead of saying, let's save the planet, this will happen in 2045 and two degrees versus 2.5 degrees. People don't understand this. But if you tell people that, you know, forest fires, they create problems for you. This, 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 those are local problems. And people can understand that. So we have to reframe the discourse, not in terms of saving the world, 
but in terms of saving the local communities and solving local problems. Right. So focus on the local, frame it in terms of what can be done, uh, minimize the dire language and, and science is what you're saying. Um, you know, Ashley, since Asim brings up specifically the issue of wildfires, uh, eastern Washington did get it particularly bad this summer. And I'm wondering, did you encounter any people who connected the air quality during that time with the issue of climate change? I hate to say it, but um, poor air quality and, and wildfire smoke is probably the best PR climate change has going for it. Mm. When people are physically affected, you know, CO2, unfortunately, is you, we, we can't see it, we can't smell it, but we could, sure can smell wildfire smoke. And it was horrible out here. I mean, local businesses just were, I think, deeply, deeply affected by the drop in tourism. You'd go into the middle of town out here, which is usually a bumping little tourist, you know, mountain biking hotspot. And folks in the valley, in the Metro Valley where I live, were they're just, the stores were empty. There weren't people here in the months of August and, and really just because of that air quality. So I think that the it was a very real, tangible hurt. However, when you actually talk to a lot of the more um, local folks, uh, not the vacationers that are in from the West Side who are like, oh gosh, climate change is terrible. This is ruining my summer vacation. Mm. The people that live here disagree about what causes the, the fires, right? Like there's a big conversation out here and, and you know, in the Forest Service at the federal level as well that um, fire suppression for, for previous decades is making wildfires worse. And the science on that is is pretty good, actually. So it's not to say that it's an either or, it's obviously multiple factors, but it would be wrong to disregard um, wildfire suppression and the, the kind of methodology of federal agencies and state agencies in suppressing fire for recent decades when we talk about wildfires. So I think that there's, again, there's subtlety and there, and I think journalists and, and academics need to be careful about how they talk about these things because, um, you know, for people out here who live abutting Forest Service land and can see how overgrown that land is, when the fire sweeps through and it's bigger and more intense than it's ever been before, there's a pretty real um, cause right outside your door to explain that that doesn't necessarily connect to what you know, the liberal elites on the West side are crowing about. Do you know what I mean? So I I guess I would just point out that like, yes, people see the connection here, but I think that there is, um, there are varying degrees of how much they'll see it as climate change related. And that really gets us to the meat of what I've brought you all here to talk about today, and that is uh, conveying the urgency and making those sorts of connections and really setting wildfires aside. It's hard to convey the urgency of something that really happens incrementally and slowly. I mean, we do know that the the 20 warmest years uh, recorded have happened within the last 22 years. But here in Washington, uh, particularly on the west side, the seasons seem to be unfolding as they usually do. And so there isn't that daily reminder. And Stephen, this is kind of the $64,000 question, but I'll just put it directly to you. How do we convey a sense of urgency in the face of what is often incremental change, but will affect us uh, in, in dire ways over the long term? Uh, I think it's really hard. Um, yeah, as you said, like, you know, it's a really hard thing to, when you deal about the, the, the costs of climate change are spread over temporal and spatial dimensions. And I think it's really hard. You know, we know a lot from behavioral economics and social psychology that we just have deficiencies in our ability to process this type of risk. And so the negative consequences, you know, I think it's, I think, you know, the, the forest fires is a really good way of doing it. You need to tie it to something tangible. And I, and I think also when it comes to you know, spending and, and policy and stuff like that, like maybe getting the sense of urgency isn't 
necessarily shouldn't necessarily be tied to climate change, but like Asim said, should be tied to actual real local local policies and local spending and local infrastructure, things that can like be very real and tangible to people. And Ashley, I will just put it to you um, because this is something that you've covered for 10 years. Do you have any insights on how to convey a sense of urgency uh, in the face of something that happens relatively incrementally? Well, um, (laughs) this might not be a popular sentiment among your listenership, but uh, I don't think urgency is working. Um, And where I live now, uh, people, you know, have lived here often for generations and you know the seasons come and the seasons change and you get through a drought and a hard spell and you get through a hard snap winter and and you continue right you you don't leave when the smoke's bad because you have to harvest your crops right people were stuck here when the worst wildfire smoke was happening and so i think that a lot of the the hand wringing and the chicken little sky is falling is another one of those things that i think is sort of associated with um outsiders um hmm. westsiders uh and so i do think that actually increasingly what i see here is um I know that when the effects of climate change hit a community like the small communities on the eastern side of the state, that they will come together and they will help each other. And so running around, um, you know, trying to, you know, alarm people is a great way to not make friends. (laughs) It's a great way to actually alienate people in your community when I think that really what we we need is we need each other and we need to be um, putting aside. It's not to say that you're you're, you know, forgetting about the issue. I don't mean to undermine the importance and really the urgency of the issue, but I just find that that's not the most effective way to talk to people that might disagree with you or might not accept the science. It's really to listen, to ask questions, to be there when they need help and to hope that they'll do the same for you because the truth is climate change is a a very, very um, existential threat to our species. And if we're not going to be working together and finding whatever common ground, even if we can't find common ground on our fundamental beliefs on the issue, if we can't just put aside um, the hand-wringing and the fear-mongering uh, and, frankly, the preaching and scolding that I think comes from a lot of the environmental community, um, we're not going to figure out how to get through this together. That's what I see out here anyway. Well, Stephen, let me ask you from a, a bit of a different perspective. Uh, you are a grad student. You teach at uh, UW. Uh, you and your students are going to be the first generation to really have to live with the effects of climate change. And I'm wondering about the attitudes um, that you see among students. Do, do you see any attitudes shifting from your perspective? Um, I don't know if I can speak to a change, given that you know I've I haven't been in graduate school that long, but you're I a PhD see... candidate. I figure you must have been there for a little while. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, I, so I've done, you know, I'm in my fifth year. Um, and, and there's also a selection process with the kind of students that go into sociology that tend to lean pretty liberal. Sure. So I definitely see a lot of support for it. I mean, no one seems to be denying it. Um, so I think generationally, it seems that younger people are sort of more on board with it. I, I actually, preparing for this, looked at the Yale Center for Climate Change Communication. And, you know, in Washington state, um, the number of people since 2016, the number of people believing in climate change, like that it's happening, hasn't really changed much. But the people who are worried about climate change and believe car- uh, carbon should be regulated as a pollutant has increased in like, I think it's every county except for one, which was Grays Harbor. Mm. Um, it's increased by as much as, you know, six percentage points in some of these counties. So I definitely agree that there seems, you know, there's definitely evidence for it increasing. May I jump in? Please. 
So I think there are two issues that we have to be very careful about. One is what people report on surveys. And if the surveys have to be believed, climate change should be the top political issue in the country. And surveys are suffering from what we call a social desirability bias. So people say what they think, the, what is the appropriate thing to say, what, to what the elite talk is. So it's not that people are revealing their true preferences. So when you see, okay, this is what people are saying, you know, they're walking the talk. And I'm just, uh, I'm just finishing up this quarter and my classes on climate change and governance. And it is very interesting when you ask people, okay, how have you changed your behavior in response to climate change? Are you driving less? No. Are you not doing study abroad? No. Are you drinking few Starbucks coffees? No. <laughs> so what are you doing to, for the cause of climate change? Zilch. Nada. <laughs> so I think it's very important that people talk and people do. And what they talk, they often don't do. So I'd be very careful in over-interpreting these surveys. And that's why, uh, you know, if politicians are making the statement, there's overwhelming support. Well, if there's overwhelming support, how come Rick Scott got elected in, in Florida? Florida has felt the brunt of major hurricanes. If there is any state in, the, in, in, in our country which is experiencing climate change, it's Florida. And still they unseated Ben Nelson and elected... Scott, and even for the governor's position, they have elected a climate skeptic. If you look at the results on this Atlantic seaboard, I don't think there is a climate tide. And unless until you are a true climate believer, you'll not get elected. So I think we have to be very careful that people may be saying something, but it's not translating into their actual behaviors. And it's certainly not translating into what they, uh, how they vote. So we have to build a political coalition. And going back to what Ashley has said, we have to go down to the local communities. We should stop this cultural condescension of hectoring and, and blaming others. And we have to understand, okay, how can we solve local problems? This finger pointing has to stop. Because unless until we all come together, there are multiple veto points in our political system. And somebody always has the ability to derail even a good policy. And what we have to understand is we have to make connections. We have to build confidence that we're not foisting our political agenda on others, but we're actually trying to solve problems that affect local communities, that affect households. So it would require an attitudinal change from environmental movement. They're not the repository of truth and other people are ignorant. Local people are very smart. Local people are very sensible and they understand their preferences and we have to respect that. And we have to work with them. Well, I think those are, uh, as you and Ashley have said, uh, possibly not the words that some listeners may want to hear, but uh, climate change is going to take all of us working together. And I think you've made some great points about community and working locally across the eastern-western divide here in the state to address the issue. So Professor Asim Prakash, Stephen Karseski, and Ashley Ahern, thank you all so much. And we will end this week with our friend Stephen Wilhelm, research team leader for Indivisible Washington's 8th. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Stephen. How's it going? Good, man. Uh, So, you know, I think the logical place to start, given what we saw uh, in the meeting yesterday between Trump, Pelosi, and Schumer regarding Trump being, quote, proud to shut down the government funding over his wall is is the issue we'll start with this week. And, and, you know, I don't mention Mike Pence because he was kind of simultaneously there and he was not there at all at that meeting, right? Indeed, yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's talk uh, about this because the continuing resolution or CR to keep the government funded expires on the 21st. What are we asking listeners to do around the CR? It 
brief statement. Um, what we want them to do is to ask their member of Congress to just extend the continuing resolution for the Department of Homeland Security for the remainder of the year. Um, you know, without getting too far down in the weeds, the government is already partly funded, and there are a few agencies that um, have not yet been funded, and, and Homeland Security is one of them. So um, whether the Congress chooses to fund the remaining agencies other than Homeland Security and just provide a continuing resolution to um, Homeland Security at the current uh, funding of $1.3 billion for um, border fencing and other security measures, whether they just want to extend that that funding or they want to do a, a CR for the you know, the seven funding bills that haven't been um, passed already. It, it matters not to us, but elections have consequences. Mm -hmm. Certainly the voters have spoken and they, they've said that they don't agree with uh, the current administration's uh, funding priorities. And so our ask to our members of Congress should be not even to um, provide $1.6 billion in funding that uh, Chuck Schumer had offered earlier as part of a, a compromise, but just to continue Department of Homeland Security in a continuing resolution at the current funding level. That's fundamentally the ask. Good. Okay. Well, yeah, as we say, elections do have consequences. And then once there is Indeed. a new... Yeah. So once there's a new House sworn in, there are a few more things that we can do to fight back against Trump's continuing attacks on uh, immigrants, particularly what's been happening down at the San Isidro border around the, the migrant caravan. Talk about that. You bet. The, the, was, as somebody was saying yesterday, all, all of a sudden it's kind of an eye-opening uh, revelation that hey, we actually can do things other than just object. <laughs> exactly. So uh, the, the thing that we'll be wanting to ask our uh, members of Congress to do in the 116th Congress that's going to get sworn in uh, next month is to really start providing that oversight that hasn't been um, given in the last two years. So we certainly are going to want our members of Congress to call for investigations into things like why are we shooting tear gas at women and children yeah. um, during demonstrations at the border? Why is the administration continuing to separate families? And why can't we get any information from the administration about how many families they have separated and what their plans are to put them back together? So, so we certainly want uh, House Democrats to use their new oversight authority to question subpoena and investigate the administration and, and hold them accountable. In, a, in an ideal world, um, if our members of Congress uh, in, in the new assignment end up being on the House Judiciary or Homeland Security or oversight committees, um, that should be where the bulk of the action is. So if that is where they end up, that'll be really great. We've got some excellent leverage there. But even if, like uh, Congressman Reichert, they, weren't on, they aren't on any of those committees, it doesn't matter. Um, there still are members of Congress, and we can certainly ask them to talk to and work with their um, colleagues that are on those committees and to sponsor legislation that will um, you know, support those priorities to, to look into those um, outrages, I'll call them, and, yeah. and to correct them so that they can't continue in the next Congress. Yeah, agreed. Well, we'll, we'll have specific calls to action about that in the new year. Uh, but you bring, up, you bring up Dave Reichert, and uh, this next item is specifically for people in the 8th Congressional District. So uh, when constituents have been calling uh, outgoing con Congressman Dave Reichert to give their input on some new stealth tax legislation in the House, uh, what are they hearing? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're uh, asking that question because my answer is 
I don't really know what they're hearing. Um, from, from what I understand, um, people are calling into his office and they just get recordings. Yeah. He's not answering his phones. It's almost as if he's very happy to continue to take his um, salary for being a congressman, but he doesn't really want to provide services to his uh, constituents anymore. So at least I, I haven't uh, spoken with anybody who, who has actually uh, talked to anybody in his office, but that's okay. Um, we, we've still got some, some ways to work around that small impediment he wants to put in front of us. For example, um, you can certainly still call his office and uh, leave voicemail. As long as you're not getting mailbox full, you know they're emptying the mailbox and you know they're hearing that message. Mm-hmm. And another thing you can do is you can go to his um, you know, Reichert.house.gov webpage, and there's a there's a link there where you can email him, and so you can still um, provide messages to him via you know voicemail message or or emails. You know whether he's actually doing anything about him or not, we don't know. But that's one thing. If you'd actually like to talk to a live human being, um, Congressman Jayapal in the seventh uh, congressional district, uh, you know, helped us out when we were having a hard time. Uh, getting Dave to come to a town hall. Yes. And I'm sure um, that we could call her office number, 202-225-3106, and say, gee, my congressman is not talking to me. Would you be so kind as to deliver a message to him? And <laughs> that'd be a nice little dig. I think it would be, too. Well, before we move on from this, tell us about this stealth piece of tax legislation briefly. Yeah, again, not a not another great uh, piece of legislation from the uh, Republican-controlled House, so it'll be good that they won't be controlling it after January. Um, probably the two big objections to this bill, at least from my, my perspective, are, number one, it's a 300-page tax bill that has a lot of technical changes and, and things in it that may or may not be good. Some of them, a few of them, may or may not be good. Um, but it was uh, totally developed uh, by Republicans without any consultation with Democrats, and it was just sprung on on the House um, a week or so ago. And in fact, they don't even have a bill um, to offer. They're going to attach it to a different bill that's got nothing to do with taxes. But so mm-hmm. here's another flim-flam kind of like using um, um, reconciliation to to try and work around the rules where they're going to – um, make some try and make some of these changes to the tax code and not pay for them again. So this would increase the deficit by another $54 billion and, frankly, would be really easy to pay for it. You just need to um, take away some of those tax breaks for the wealthy right. and go ahead and use that money to, to pay for these things if, if, in fact, these are things you want to do. And, and again, there are some they're, – they're extending some tax breaks that already exist, and they're trying to make some, make some fixes to the tax bill because – there's some big mistakes in there because they just rushed it through without adequate hearings and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's definitely not. Not remember uh, President Trump had promised. Well, I'm gonna I'm I'm working on a tax break for the middle class and we're gonna pass it uh, before the election. Well, no, wait is is that is that, is that your Trump impression? Yeah, that was it. That was the best <laughs> I could do. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, um, and um, they they uh, didn't pass it before the election, and it doesn't include tax breaks for the middle class. It's just um, some little technical tweaks. So, nope, let's do it right, and let's pay for it. And so let's please ask Dave Reichert via voicemail and email and via messages from his good friend, uh, Representative Jayapal, to vote no 
on that tax bill. It's just a bad bill. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And, and literally, it seems that uh, people in the 8th District have uh, taxation without representation right now. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> yes, we we should fight a revolution or something. <laughs> we might have thrown some tea into oh, you know what? Puget Sound. Did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So and finally, uh, as I, I mentioned in the previous segment, Congresswoman-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, along with another uh, with a number of other members of Congress, has put forward the Green New Deal. And Ocasio-Cortez is specifically calling for the establishment of a select committee for the Green New Deal. So first, talk about the select committee for the Green New Deal and how it would be distinct from other congressional committees that may be perceived as overlapping? Yeah, that's a really good question. This is a new thing on me. I mean, I've heard of uh, select committees before, but I didn't know exactly how they worked or how they came about. I didn't either. Yeah. 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 So, so it looks like the, the way, the way select committees get established is they need to be, um, um, authorized or described or, or, uh, implemented in, um, the, House rules for the 116th Congress, maybe people will recall, um, you know, when this all started back in, in 2017, both the House and the Senate needs to establish working rules for what they're going to do for that session of the legislature. And some of that stuff is, you know, rules that they've carried forward since the, you know, 17 or 1800s. But some of them, some of them are new rules for this session. So here would be a new rule. House rule for this session that would establish what's called a select committee for a Green New Deal, um, and so uh, what? What if if those rules are passed by by the House? Uh, you know, by the by the whole House when they establish their rules for the 116th Congress, what that would do is that would authorize the Speaker to select thus a select committee, um, 15 members and uh, nine of whom would be uh, Democrats and six of whom would be Republicans, to work on this Green New Deal. Um, Now, another interesting thing about select committees I didn't know is that they do not have formal legislative authority, but what they do have is critical investigatory um, and convening powers that will be necessary to to do their work. And so the legislation that's going to implement the Green New Deal um, has to be written and implemented no more than 10 years from the beginning of its execution. That's all part of the, you know, the rules that would be established at the beginning of the 116th Congress. And so what's interesting is given that uh, timeline, or what's interesting about that 10 years is that the United Nations has recently issued a a report saying that we've only got 12 years to make the changes we need um, for global warming to be kept to a maximum of one and a half degrees centigrade. So the timing on this is really good. And then what this select committee will do is they will investigate and hold hearings and propose legislation that would actually be um, then, um, you know, come forward from the committees that have actually got jurisdiction, be it the energy and commerce committees or natural resource or or other committees. So that's why. Well, since um, you bring up those two committees, uh, there would not be. Uh, any substantial overlap between those two committees and the new Green Deal committee. That, that's how it'd be laid out, right? It, it, exactly so. And in fact, to, to use a word that's bouncing around a lot in the uh, Russia investigation, there would be some good synergy um, oh, between 
these two uh, standing committees and the select committee, and, and the synergy would be obviously the those two standing committees have a lot of things that they need to do besides just focus on climate change and global warming. Obviously, that's a big part of their por- portfolio, but it's by no means the only part of their portfolio. Whereas the uh, Savat committee on a new green deal, that's their only reason to exist. So, so the synergy is the, the the select committee can focus on it full time, 100 percent. That's their only reason for existence. But then they can work with the standing committees to actually get the legislation passed. And obviously those standing committees have already done some work or, or are aware of some things that they can share with the select committee. So there, there's some real nice opportunities for those those three committees to work together. Okay. So then what specifically are we asking our, I would imagine, Democratic members of Congress to do here? You bet. In fact, uh, just to focus briefly on the 8th the district, we, much like Congressman Reichert, we are having a little bit of a challenge for, for totally different reasons, um, trying to figure out how we communicate with our new uh, Democratic representative in the 8th district. It looks like right now, um, until somebody can, can offer a better um, opportunity, it looks like the best way to, oper- to, to communicate with uh, Congresswoman uh, Schreier is uh, info at drkimschreier.com. And it does look like I, I have gotten email from her on, on policy issues, not just campaign issues within the last um, you know week or so. So it looks like, at least right now, that's an okay address to use to communicate with her until she establishes her, her legislative office. Um, so anyway, so communicate with your um, um, uh, House uh, member of Congress, how, however you can do that, and ask that person to please support establishing a select committee for a Green New Deal in the House rules for the 116th Congress. Well, that sounds really great, and I sincerely hope that there is enough support to make something like that happen, given the urgency of the matter. So, Stephen, as always, thank you so much, man, and we'll check in with you next time. Yeah, my pleasure, Stephen. Enjoyed it. Uh, Talk to you soon. And that's going to do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org and subscribe to the show while you are there. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Please keep these show suggestions and comments coming. I love it. And the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. with production assistance from Cecilia Knob. Thank you again to my guests, Asim Prakash, Stephen Karseski, and Ashley Ahern. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.